in the last episode we looked at was when he was 12. We're going to move ahead 18 years. And now we are beginning the ministry that Jesus has come to fulfill. Israel, after centuries of expectation, are longing for the new age. They're longing for the new exodus. They're longing for the end of exile. And now they find themselves in, basically imprisoned again under foreign rulers, still in exile, still awaiting that final deliverance. And it's about to happen, but they're not ready. So they need the way prepared. And thus we come to the ministry of John the Baptist. Not John the Presbyterian. No, I'm just kidding. John the Baptist. Known because of this unique baptism that he is performing in the wilderness, in the Jordan. I mean, imagine how, how, you know, how news-making this was that his own name would have his action attached to it. John, which one? Well, the baptizer. That guy. So we're going to unpack what he was doing and why he was doing it. But that's where we're heading this morning. You'll notice the outline is in two parts. And we're going to look at Luke's account of this. Now this is also recorded in Matthew chapter 3 and also Mark chapter 1. Mark actually begins his gospel with just jumping right into the preparatory ministry of John the Baptist. John in chapter 1 also has some of what we're going to look at here, but we're going to look at John's account a little bit later. And, you'll, we'll, and that's in a, in a few weeks, actually, is this, when we'll look at John's account. But uh, this is parallel in all three of those. Where there are a few differences, I'll bring them up, but we're going to focus just on Luke's account. And as you recall, when I said we're going to do the life of Christ, I'll be necessarily choosing, if there are parallel accounts, I'll be choosing one for us to focus on and then bringing in some others. I'm chosen Luke in this case because he adds a few additional details that the others do not. So that's why we're looking at this account. So first we have Luke recording basically the context of John's ministry, what's going on, and then we're going to look at the content of what he's saying and what, what was he declaring and why was he declaring it. And those are our two main points this morning. So in Luke chapter 3, Beginning at verse 1, we're going to read through verse 6. Luke 1, 3, I mean Luke 3, 1 through 6. So let's have someone read that for us. All right, I knew you were there, Jay. All right, you were just waiting. No, Luke 3. It's all right. That's it. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Assyria, and the Traconians and Lithuanians, tetrarch of Abilene, oh wow, there's a country. <laughs> <laughs> During the high priesthood of Annas and Caracalathus, the word of God came to John son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins as it was written in the book and the words of Isaiah the prophet. <coughs> a 
the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley should be filled, every mountain and hill made low. The crook in the road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. All right, thank you, sir. Okay. There's our, you're the only guy I know who takes his glasses off to read. That's amazing. <laughs> all right, now, notice, like, like, you know, this is Luke's deal here to give us precision, okay? He wants to give us some precision as to when this was happening, so he dates it very precisely for us. But it's more than just when it happened. We also, because of this listing, we get an, a glimpse into sort of the, 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 the picture of the day of when John began his ministry and when Jesus' ministry begins. You have this, look, look at this chopped up, you know, area of Palestine now. It's all these different rulers. And you have someone like Tiberius who is over all. And you have two high priests, one actually holding the office, the other kind of pulling the strings. And there's, in other words, for those who, who know, you, we, by, by hearing this, it's not just dating, but it's also telling us that this is a time of, of division and, and, and strife, and, and it's into this context that the ministry begins. Well, let's unpack it a little bit. First, we have Tiberius Caesar, and this allows us to date this. Uh, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Jesus was born under the reign of Augustus Caesar, and Augustus died in A.D. 14, and Tiberius then became emperor. Now, interestingly, they were co-regents, actually, from around 1112 A.D. So then people say, all right, so is, is Luke dating this from Tiberius' beginning of his co-regency with Augustus, or is he dating this from 14 when he was sole emperor? That gives us a range of dates from around 26 to 29 A.D. Most kind of just settle in the middle and go with about 27 A.D. But we're in that ballpark is where we are. So it's not just Tiberius Caesar. We also are told now that Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea. So Pontius, Pontius Pilate's on the scene. The reason he's a governor and there's no tetrarch, meaning there's no son of Herod the Great in charge is because there was. Remember, Archelaus was in charge, but he was so ruthless and such a poor leader that he was exiled uh, by Augustus. And from that point forward, Judea was under the procuratorship or governorship of a Roman uh, prefect rather than allow a Jew to do this. Well, Jew in, in name, let's put it that way. So that's why Judea doesn't have a tetrarch. Tetrarch from the word, you know, tetra, four, archos, ruler, a group of four rulers. That's why it was divided when Herod the Great died. So you have Pontius Pilate, who is over Judea, and then he gives us more details. Uh, you have Herod, tetrarch of Galilee. This is Herod Antipas. All right, Herod Antipas. So he... he has been the Tetrarch of Galilee since Jesus was a boy. And over time, his rule has become more and more like his father's, if you want to think of it that way. He even wanted to, uh, eventually he is deposed because he wants to put the title of king with his name. And he's, the Romans say, no, gone. And so anyway, there's more of that. Jesus will call him that fox uh, 
later. And this is the Herod that's going to figure in the rest of the Gospels. This is the guy, Herod Antipas, all right? So he's the one that Jesus will go before later in his trial. That's the guy. He's the one who's going to have John the Baptist imprisoned and beheaded. That's the guy. This is the Herod we're talking about. And he is the Tetrarch of Galilee. Then you have another Tetrarch, we're told, of Philip, the Tetrarch of Etruria and Trachonitis. And I know y'all were interested in who was the Tetrarch then of those regions. Um, this is the only mention of this guy in, in the New Testament. There's another Philip, half-brother of Herod, who will figure in, which is confusing, right? To give him different names, please. But there's another one that will, will come up who's not this guy. Clear? All right, cool. He's the Philip that, the who, he's the Philip who was married to Herodias, who Herod Antipas takes, his, takes Herodias as his wife, and that's John denounces him. We're, we'll get to that eventually. But, but it's not Philip the Tetrarch, it's another Philip. Clear? Yeah, cool. All right. Uh, and then you have Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. Abilene. Hey, there we go. Uh, we don't need to know about him. All right. It was one of those things, though, where people were saying, aha, see, Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. Licinius was, you know, Licinius, the Tetrarch of Abilene, died much earlier. And haha, he's got his facts wrong until there were inscriptions discovered in the area from this time talking about another Licinius who was Tetrarch. So, haha, you were wrong. <laughs> um, and then he says, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, well, there's only one high priest. And here, this is John giving the intrigue of the day. I mean, Luke giving the intrigue of the day because he's aware of what's going on. Uh, Annas was deposed as high priest many, many years earlier by uh, the Roman governor. And then his son-in-law, Caiaphas, took over. Caiaphas is actually the high priest in name, but Annas is still behind the scenes exerting great power. We read about that in Acts chapter 4 when we were studying Acts. So he's not mistaken in saying this. People just considered it two high priests. And at this point, they're going, no one's going, but there's only one high priest. They're all just going, eh. it's what it is. So that's the timing. And then we're told, we're told, this is the description, just how the, the prophets of the Old Testament, we read about their calling. This parallels that calling. If you think of the calling of Jeremiah, or a lot of the minor prophets, we're told of the date, dating by kings. You know, it parallels that, that whole dating system and then giving the ancestry and then talking about the call. Well, here you have the dating. Then we're given the ancestry. We know of John, son of Zacharias. And the word of God came to him. So, here you have a prophet. Whoa! Luke is helping us to understand that this is a continuation of prophecy that had been silenced for so many centuries and now here is a prophet in the wilderness in the wilderness where the people gathered before they came into the promised land on the other side of the Jordan You're seeing all these parallels and here's a prophet now declaring the Word of God we're told in Matthew's account and Mark's account too how he's dressed you know we're told this you know the camel hair and the 
the girding the loins and eating locusts and honey. And so a very ascetic life, but that's also reminiscent of Elijah. And in Malachi, we're told that Elijah, a precursor, would come in anticipation of the Messiah. And even the description of John fits that. So here you have this prophet, this crazy wild guy coming out of the wilderness to declare to the people a message of repentance. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he's baptizing them in symbolism of that repentance. So this is going to attract attention. We have a tendency to think he's just sort of out there by himself and a few people coming by. This attracts attention and people come. Mark, Mark tells us they come from Jerusalem. Matthew says Pharisees, Sadducees come. People are coming. We're told as well Herod Antipas notices this because here's a guy who seems to be like a lot of the other would-be messiahs or would-be prophets stirring up trouble. This could make trouble. So people notice this. This would have been in the news, if you want to think of it that way. And, he's, and they're coming to hear him say things they may not want to hear. He wouldn't do well in today's context. It's not that therapeutic. He's not telling them what, he's not affirming their culture. He's, he's actually preaching. And he's preaching a message of repentance. And notice who he's, he's preaching it to. Jews. The people of Israel. The ones who are anticipating the coming Messiah, the new exodus, the new age, the final end of exile, all of this, and he's saying, you're not ready. So he's preaching a message of repentance and demonstrating that in the Jordan, the river they crossed over to come into the promised land, a new identification for Israel. Baptism? Only proselytes, Gentile proselytes to Judaism were baptized. They were baptized. And now you're telling us, us Jews, we need to be baptized? Yes. We are going to renew who we are as Israel and be true Israel to welcome Israel's true king. So repentance. And here you have... Luke quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Matthew and Mark both quote the first verse of this as well. Luke includes the larger context. Now, the original context of this passage in Isaiah was an anticipation of them returning from exile in Babylon. And the prophet said, make, make way for the Lord to lead his people. So notice that over the overtones of return from exile. And over the centuries, people were looking for a fuller fulfillment of that, not just in return from Babylon, but in this person making way for the Messiah to lead his people out of the exile in which they find themselves. So he quotes from the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation, and and we're all pretty familiar with this, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, and make ready the way of the Lord. And then you have this Eastern understanding of if the king is coming, 
you make the path straight, you level the ground, get rid of all the obstacles, and that's what we see here. Ravines filled up, mountains brought low, crooked made straight, roads made strewth. I'm making up wordage. Okay, smooth, all right? All of that in anticipation of the king, of the Messiah. Now, obviously, we're interpreting this symbolically, as these people would, as Luke has, as John saw his ministry. They're not out there excavating roads. They're not out there with, you know, dirt movers and those kinds of things. This is inside. You people, we need to be ready. And we're going to be ready through repentance. Repentance from our old ways, from the idolatry, from the selfishness, from everything that has made us not Israel. We haven't been the light. No one wants to come to us. We're kind of just using our own descent from Abraham as an excuse just to be exclusive. We're not being Israel. That needs to change. So that, look at the last verse, that all flesh, all mankind will see the salvation of God. And for Luke, that's a big deal. Luke is always opening out in his gospel to show that, yes, Jesus is in fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, and he is the king, he is the Messiah, but not just for ethnic Israel, but for all the world. Because remember, when Israel is truly Israel, when the king is in Zion, that will be a light and all nations will come to him. So that's the context of his role, his position as the baptizer, as the forerunner. Not just saying, well, y'all are bad and need to repent. That's yes, but y'all are bad at being Israel. Because you're bad, you're bad at being Israel. You're not ready for the king. And there has to be a change. Hence, repentance. So that's the context. He doesn't end there, though. Now we're going to look into the content. What is he saying? Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't see that. See that hand. I see that hand up front. Okay. I'm struck by, by how this imagery that's applied to what John does really tells two things. Number one, that preaching the word, preparing people being evangelistic is hard work because this imagery is from when they would prepare for a king to go visit another country and they would literally build the road out of all this stuff and they would have hundreds of thousands of people doing hard work to prepare and the second part of the imagery is that we are the people that are being plowed up we are the ones who have need to have the road made straight. And so yeah. the hard work is in us because we have all the obstacles right. to receiving the king. Good. Yes? In the Jewish religion, is the name, I know that in eight days the name of child is given to the Lord. Is that part of what they were sort of their baptism? Yeah, the baptism was already around, but it was for Gentiles who were coming. But 
into the fold. Well, they had ritual purifications before you could make a sacrifice, sort of with washings with water. But nothing of this particular import that kind of, that's why he's so unique and why his name, Baptizer, is attached to him. Because it's so radical and so different. Yes. Well, let's go ahead and look at the next part of the passage. We're going to look at it in three, three chunks, though it's one thing in the outline. Uh, we're going to look at it in three chunks, and I would like someone to read there for verses 7, 8, and 9. One more. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, that's not something they necessarily want to hear. He's no Dr. Feelgood. He's not Dr. Feelgood. That's it. He's not a very good therapist. He didn't come out and say, four ways for you to be wealthy in Jesus. You know, it's not any of that. It's... There's a message of repentance here. And it's shocking to them, too, because their understanding of the, the axe being laid, if they knew Scripture, that was, that was talking about other nations. And now he's talking about them. Don't think you could come and just go through a ritual as if this symbolism is the thing that's going to do it. And don't think that your carnal ancestry, your fleshly ancestry, is going to do anything for you. When we say repentance, when he says repentance, he's talking about bringing fruit in keeping with that repentance. So he says he sees them coming out. And again, we're not told all of John's ministry and all of what he says. In fact, in verse, 19, in verse 18, he says, with many other or exhortations he preached to the people the good news. So we're not told everything and not told all the exact context, but you can tell that John knows his audience. In Matthew, we're told this, that, that he said this same thing to the Pharisees and Sadducees. So you have these religious leaders coming out because of John's popularity, most likely, and because people are seeing this and coming in droves to this prophet, a prophet, that they're, they're coming out too to kind of say, oh, we're here too, and just going through the motions. And John recognizes that. Yes? Uh, if you want to see what uh, the conditions were that John was dealing with, uh, Jesus explains the same thing in the seven woes. Yeah. That's what they were, he was addressing, is the, the, the seven woes and the Pharisees and Sanctuary. Yeah, exactly. Good job. Yes? Mm-hmm. It had been a long, long time since there had been somebody that the general population recognized, recognized as, as a mm-hmm. God talking to. Very good, yeah, and hence the news making, yeah. Well, he says to them his first words, 
This is not going to win your audience over. You brood of vipers. Wow. You children of snakes. Isaiah 59. They conceive trouble, give birth to evil. They hatch eggs of vipers and spin spiders' webs. So he's hearkening to the words of Isaiah. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee? I see you scurrying out of the grass now that the fire is coming. Don't think you're going to escape. Wow. Yeah, all those aspen bushmasters and cobras. All kinds of fun snakes. Oh, yeah. Water moccasins. <laughs> there was our herpetology lesson for the morning. So, so bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. I mean, that's nothing new. In other words, show the repentance. Don't just go through the motions. And of course, that's easily applicable to all of us. Our repentance needs to be demonstrated by our actions. Metanoeo is the word in the Greek for repentance. Uh, to think again, to think after, meta, after, noeo, to think, to actually change, to rethink. And by that rethinking, reacting, new action, turn around, change, and fruit that comes from that. And he, lest they think, well, we, at least we're the chosen people. You know, at least we're Abraham's descendants which is what they've been using for centuries now. All the prophets have said, you think that's enough? Of course it's not enough. It's not enough just to, to, to rely upon your descent. Well, my grandfather was the founder of this church. Well, good for you. You're going to blow hell wide open. <laughs> which is something that John would say. That's kind of what he's saying. There's also a play on words here that we miss we actually miss it in the Greek, too. If he was speaking, it's Aramaic. He's not, he's not talking Greek to these people. He's probably speaking Aramaic. That was the language of the day for the people of the day in that region of the world. And the word for sons is Bebnayam. The word for stones is Abnayam. Bebnayam, Abnayam. Because he says, I say to you, God is able to raise from these Abnayam the Bednayam of Abraham. So a little play on words there, even more of a zinger, if you wanted to think of it that way. Now, of course, you can hear also allusions to future where Jesus is saying the stones would cry out. And you hear Paul, of course, talking about this in Romans chapter 9, that not everyone who is a descendant of Abraham is the, is, is the children of the promise. It's children of the promise, not children of the flesh, all that stuff. Be Israel not just in ritual. Be Israel, not just in descent. Be Israel in action. Be God's people. And he says, because I'm telling you, the axe is already at the tree. The time of decision is coming. And we see, of course, later God's judgment on Israel in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. In other words, the time is approaching. You're going to have to be true Israel. The remnant will continue. The axe is laid at the tree. Now, if you're there and you're hearing this 
and you really want to follow what the prophet is saying, some of the people, let's grant them, let's give them credit, they say, well, what do we do? That's a good question. If you're hearing all this, well, then how do I do this? So now let's read, beginning verse 10 up through verse 14. 10 through 14. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none, and let him who has food do likewise. And some tax gatherers also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. All right. Now, a lot of people ask this in a religious way, right? What do we do? And he doesn't say, all right, you need to make sure you gather up all the sacrifices you can and make sure you go through all the rituals you can and get up to the temple of Jerusalem and show that you are the nation that way. No. In fact, he answers the way a lot of us don't want to hear the answer. He starts with personal, ethical behavior. That's what needs to change. You know, this harkens to Micah, right? The famous passage in Micah 6. You know, what is it that God wants of you? Well, you know. What is it? It's to, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk faithfully, circumspectly with God. It's always the trap to think we can do our religious things and somehow that makes us okay. When in actuality, it's not the religious things. It's, the, it's, it's how we're living our lives. So he starts right there. You want to be the light? You want to be ready for the Messiah? You want to be his people? Are you ready? Well, here's how you do it. So the crowd asks, well, what do we do? There's, you know, just the kind of the... You know, just the general folks. And he says, all right. You have an extra tunic? Give it away. What? That's it? Yeah, and you get the idea. In other words, do justice. Love. That's, that's basically what he's saying. Don't, don't be insular. Give. Love. Sacrifice. Tax collectors. Oh, we're getting to that part of the year too, right? Oh, here we come. Now, tax collectors, of course, as we, <laughs> as we know, as we know, they were very different from tax collectors then. These were, you know, they were called, they thought of them as lackeys and sellouts to the Roman Empire. Taxes had to be collected, and these tax collectors were hired. Someone knew how much had to be gathered, and they would hire tax collectors, and they'd go out and gather it, and in order for them to make money, they had to extort more, so it was a racketeering business. It was a shakedown, basically. Very corrupt. Very corrupt. A shakedown, and so they were, on two counts, they were considered. So first of all, they're unclean, working with, you know, the filthy lucre of Rome. And second, they're traitors. So these people, they've heard that there's a prophet. It's amazing that they're there, um, in, incredibly. And he tells them, stop. He doesn't say stop being tax collectors. He goes, all right, I know you've got to earn a living. 
Stop being corrupt. Take what's owed. Don't take more. Do justice. Be fair. Yeah, just that. Why were there soldiers there? These aren't Roman soldiers. There's no, you know, it's not like Roman soldiers would go, hey, let's go see the crazy men. These are probably soldiers accompanying the tax collectors, probably part of in, in Herod Antipas's cohort to make sure that taxes are collected. And he doesn't tell them, quit being soldiers. He doesn't say that. He says, stop using your position to extort people, because you can bully people into giving more. Be content with your wages. Do justice. Be fair. Well, that was the, the Roman soldiers, but this is this is different. All tax collectors. Yep. Yep. So the whole general tenor of what he's saying is, start here. Start here. That's how we're going to make the path straight. That's how we're going to level this. That's how we're going to make all of us ready for the coming king. That's how. Great stuff. And it's still, I don't know if that's relevant to us today. I don't know if there's any application. Yeah. In other words, it's almost wham. It's, it's, it's too simple. You know, kids come into my office, you know, I don't know God's will. You know, I want to know God's will. And they, what they want to know is where to go to college and all those kind of things, right? That's, that's what they want to know. But, you know, if I, if I tell them, all right, I want you to go out of my office, and the first person you see, I want you to, I want you to love them. Well, no, that's not what I mean. But that's what it is. Well, given this, and the news that he's generating, naturally, here's a prophet in the wilderness declaring that, and, and we're told in, in Matthew's account, that he declares the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. So their natural thoughts would be, well, is he the Messiah? Is this guy the Messiah? Well, let's hear that part, portion of our passage for today. We'll end with this, 15 through 17. Someone read those aloud. All right. That's a nice response. I wonder if he's the Messiah. He knows that people are talking about this and wondering if he is. And he lets them know probably on more than one occasion, okay, it's not just the one-time gig, more than one occasion that, no, I am not the one. There is one coming after me. And when we read John's account in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll hear some more about this. But there's one coming after me, one greater than I am, mightier than I am. Oh, that's going to make Herod Antipas really happy. Now we know 
that Herod has him put away because John denounces his sin, but he's also, you know, worried about insurrection and all this, and there's someone else. Who, what is this guy doing? But there is one greater. John lets the people know that I am not him. And this greater one, I've baptized you with, with just water. You know, that's, I, that's all I've done. He will baptize you for real. Think of it that way. I've done this symbolic thing in hoping you will bring fruit of repentance and preparation for him. But there's a real baptism coming. An interior baptism. A, what I'm doing is preparatory. What he is going to do is actual. And he says this in the, right before he says that, he says, And this one who's mightier than I, I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandal. The, the general tenor of that, of course, is that that's how much greater he is. Even, even Hebrew slaves were exempt from untying someone's sandal. It was considered the most menial task. Rabbi said, even your Hebrew slaves don't have to do this. That's how menial it was. So the general, of course, takeaway from this is that John is using that image to say, I'm not even worthy to do what is the lowest task when it concerns him. There's also some scholars, and this is more of a, especially um, fourth century and medieval interpretation, some see in this, and I'm not gonna make a big deal of it because most modern interpreters don't necessarily see it this way, but they see in this a hint at leverage, leveret marriage, that John is saying, I'm not worthy to be the bridegroom and to pass that right of me taking a bride who is, who is rightfully mine in the leveret marriage sense, to relinquish that I would untie the sandal of the next who would do this. And I'm not even worthy to do that. The, real, the true bridegroom is coming. In other words, there's maybe a little more symbolism to this than just him, him trying to give a degree of separation between himself and his worth, and that of the Messiah. That being said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm... No, you're I'm, not. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm, I'm just sort of seeing for the first time that John is not describing a calm, sweet, uh, peaceful... Um, Messiah, he's describing somebody extremely active, even violent, in what he's bringing. I like that you use the word active. That's a great word. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. At every turn, their expectation of the Redeemer, of the Messiah, is going to be shattered. They just want someone powerful to deliver them from Rome and to set up Israel as the great light just because they're Israel. Whereas John is saying, no, you've got to be true Israel. And a lot of the judgment that's coming is not on the pagan nations. It's going to be on you. And even, we were even told, you know, as we studied earlier in the prophecies about who Jesus would be, that there would be, this, there would be division because of him. And here you see this division, this baptism with, with the Holy Spirit, in fire. 
In other words, the Holy Spirit coming upon the people, as Joel had promised, will act like fire, both purifying and melting, judging. It's one and the same. We see hints of this with Pentecost, too, with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the, the tongues of, as of flame with the people. But there's more going on than that because of this image of the threshing floor and the winnowing fork. Here's fire and fork, if you want to think of it that way. Now, I'm just telling you this from reading. I've never done this. But then when they would harvest the grain, they would have it trodden on by oxen and usually dragging some things that would break up the kernels. And, and it's because they wanted to get to the grain itself. And then the, the threshing floor would be where wind would sweep down, and this, the winnowing fork would be to throw it up in the air, and the chaff was blown away, and the kernels would stay. And that's an image here that he brings up. It's interesting that the whole, that word for spirit in, in Greek is pneuma, which can also mean breath or wind. So it's interesting that too with this understanding of the threshing floor and the activity of the wind, same word in the Greek, that you would have now this separation. And he's telling them, one who's coming is greater than I, and his work of baptism, true baptism, in anointing true Israel, is going to be not what you expect. And notice the chaff burned with unquenchable fire. So, and then, and then Luke adds, and with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. <laughs> you, know, just, you know, it wasn't all doom and gloom. There's hope in this, right? If they will listen, while it sounds, you know, shocking, and that's the point, right? That's what prophets do. They come and shatter this preparation, this making straight. That's what he's doing. You want to think of him almost like a bulldozer, just blowing through all of what their expectations were and their complacency to say, there's got to be change, and change is coming. What I'm doing, this is just preparatory. There is more to come. Be ready. All right. Yes, sir. I'm just looking at your tie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, th this passage really illustrates a theologic difference between Orthodox Jews, Judaism, and Christianity. Orthodox Jews thought the paradise or heaven was something to be lost. They had it innately because they were children of Abraham. If they were, if they did something that made them contrary to what it meant to be an Orthodox Jew, they would lose it. Christianity looks at paradise or heaven as something that's gained. You have to gain. How do you know? Well, do you have good fruit? Well, what's good fruit? Well, good fruit here is, is counter to what we do naturally. You know, you give your tunic away. You, 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 you don't cheat. You do all these things that we do naturally. Well, how can you do that? You only can do that because the one, the greater one who is coming, who can enable you to do that. And so it, 
it really yeah. does illustrate. Yeah, that's difference. great. Yeah. And there's more to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good stuff. Yes, sir. Again. I meant to tell you, too, um, John the Baptist's ministry is accounted in extra-biblical sources as well. Josephus has quite a bit to say about John the Baptist and even his arrest and why he was arrested. and talks quite a bit about his baptism, the fact that he was doing this in the wilderness, calling Israel to repent. So even Josephus brings this up, and he'll come up again later when we talk about uh, John's arrest and those sorts of things. Awesome. Yes, ma'am. One more question. See, you're not sorry. Uh, yeah. The, I've heard sermons where the good fruit mm -hmm. we're supposed to bear connected with evangelism. That that's the good fruit. That, uh, you mean the harvest that comes no, along with evangelism, or? No, no, Right. And I think that's part of it, but notice how what he tells them. He doesn't say, go spread the good news. The good fruit he tells them is, just be good people. Now, I think telling the good news is a mandate that we as Christians have uh, that Jesus gives us, that as we're going to make disciples. But the fruit in keeping with repentance that John is asking for is for them to actually be the people they've called to be in how they treat others. And that fruit will be evident. Yeah. Awesome. Well, next week, we will look at continuation of John's ministry with the baptism of Jesus and then the subsequent temptation of Jesus. So, we'll finally get to Jesus again. All right. This is the life of Christ, so let's pray. Again, Father, as always, we are grateful for your word, and we're humbled uh, always that uh, no matter how many times we study it, no matter how many times we read it, your Holy Spirit constantly brings up new things, and we're, uh, we're brought, as, as John would have us, 
brought to moments of repentance constantly because of the truth of your word. Thank you, Father, for the faithfulness of men like John, how rough that must have been, uh, but how faithful he was in, in doing what you've called him to do and with an unpopular message, even though he's bringing a message of hope. Uh, in our world, we find ourselves increasingly in that position. We bring a message of hope, but it's unpopular, especially when we talk about the fruit of repentance. So may we have the steadfastness of someone like John the Baptist as we go about uh, making the way uh, for the Messiah to come into people's hearts. Keep us attuned to those opportunities we have this week to serve you. In the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.